I remember when I found out I was in the streets of Brooklyn and I just started screaming my head off. I was so excited. There was an endless party. There was just endless honking, endless joy in the streets. And I remember I looked around and all these people were wearing like Biden Harris swag. And I was like, oh, that's where all our merch went. <laughs> like, that's where it is. Hello, this is the Great Battlefield Podcast. I'm Nathaniel G. Perlman. A great political battle is being fought right now between progressives and the forces of reaction on the other side. This show is about the political entrepreneurs and other progressive leaders who are finding new or improved ways to fight. Here is another in my series of interviews with technologists from the Biden presidential campaign. Today's guest is Jack E. Chang, who is Chief Technology Officer for the General Election, CTO. Jackie is a software engineer from Silicon Valley, where she worked at places like StumbleUpon, Eventbrite, and Stripe. She joined Hillary's 2016 campaign toward the end and did some subsequent work for the DNC on voter protection. She then worked for Schmidt Futures on their democracy-building portfolio. That's Schmidt as in Eric Schmidt, former CEO of Google. She then joined the Biden campaign last summer. I enjoyed the conversation about Jackie's move into the democratic political technology world and what she's learned there, as well as she's up to now, post-victory. So, after a quick word from our sponsor, my interview with Jackie Chang with Biden for President. This episode is brought to you by Graphicacy. Graphicacy is an analytic design firm that can help you advance the mission of your organization using your own real data and information. They are 21st century visual communicators who create interactive graphics, motion graphics, and data visualizations. You can find Graphicacy at graphicacy.com. That is G-R-A-P-H-I-C-A-C-Y.com. With Graphicacy's help, you can visualize a better world. Hi, Jackie. Hey. Would you mind introducing yourself and giving me a quick biography? Sure. Um, so my name is Jackie Chang. I most recently was the CTO of the Biden campaign. Prior to that, I was a software engineer for a while in Silicon Valley. Um, I got started when I sort of fell into software engineering in college and worked at a couple of startups in the Bay Area, including trying to start my own, and then ended up in politics pretty randomly. I joined the Hillary campaign in 2016 after visiting a friend who was working for the campaign in June of 2016 and decided to take a few months off of my job in San Francisco and I guess like check out what campaigning was like. Um, was just like really curious about it and it was utterly life-changing. And that's what put me on track, you know, ended up at the DNC in 2018 doing voter protection work and then got involved uh, with the Biden campaign in the, gosh, summer, I guess, of 2020. It feels like it was both forever ago and not that long ago. Your story used to be a really rare one for technologists, but it's not, it's a lot less so now. And you see, well, first of all, there's just so many more technologists involved in politics than there used to be. But also people are being pulled or pulling themselves from the private sector or the equivalent over there. And, and I think it's, it's a really interesting development. I, I wonder, though, if we can go back a little bit and just tell me a little about where you grew up and what kind of youth you had. Sure. So I was born in Kansas City, Kansas. It's a pretty small town. and I don't remember a lot of it, to be honest. I was there until I was 11. When you're that age, you know, your life revolves around school and home um, and then church. So I actually grew up in a very conservative religious family. We moved to Atlanta when I was 11 in the suburbs of Atlanta, actually in the Georgia Six. Um, so Newt Gingrich was my, <laughs> was my representative growing up. Uh, so you can imagine what that was like. Went to a fairly conservative Christian private school was like a huge nerd growing up, but also really into art. So the the like shift into software engineering was pretty weird for me. Um, was like really into art, was really into literature, played sports, played music, 
And then when I got to college, sort of fell into engineering, which I think I mentioned earlier. So yeah, left the South when I went to school. One does not randomly go to MIT without some interest in engineering, right? What made that where you applied and decided to go? Yeah, I probably, I guess, will use the word random a lot to describe my life because that's how it feels in some ways. Basically, what happened is um, my sophomore year of high school, I applied for a summer program called Governor's Honors Program. It's a summer camp for um, high achievers in Georgia to do like a math or a science of some sort. I was waitlisted, which was crushing to me. And so I applied the following year again, um, because it was for juniors and sophomores. And at the same time, though, my dad was like, oh, there's this program, this summer program at MIT, and you should apply to that too. And at the time, I was like, I don't even really know. Like, you know, MIT wasn't on my radar as a place that was interesting. My brother had done a summer program at Duke, and I was like, oh, my God, you know, he we had a very good relationship and he was my idol. And I was like, Oh my God, I want to go to Duke. That sounds incredible. Um, But my dad was like, you should check out the summer program at MIT called women's technology program. It was a theoretical math and and computer science program. And I got into that and I had been like, I don't care. I want to go to GHP because all my friends were going, I didn't get in the previous year and so on. And my dad was like, you know, MIT is really expensive. The chances that you'll get in are pretty minimal. Like, you should go to to the summer program because it's your only chance to ever go to MIT. And I was like, okay. You know, I was like, what, I guess 16 at the time. I was like, sure, dad, that seems like great logic. So I went to this program and hated software engineering, like hated it, but fell in love with MIT, just completely in love. So I ended up coming back home and I was like, dad, I want to go to MIT, uh, which he was of course thrilled about. My mom, who was the keeper of the, the books, was a little less thrilled about that, <laughs> that declaration. Um, but I think to my parents' credit, you know, when I got in, uh, which is no guarantee by any measure for anyone, my parents made it work. And um, yeah, I like was so excited. I was like, I'm going to go to MIT. I'm not going to do software engineering because I hated it, but I want to do a dual degree in math and economics. I want to do economic policy in the government. And then I got to MIT So MIT primarily focuses on theoretical math, which is probably no surprise. It turns out I'm atrocious at theoretical math, just like terrible at it, Um, which I later, much later learned is not the math that you care about if you're doing economic policy. But of course, at the time, didn't know it. Um, And so what ended up happening is my freshman year, I had an extra slot and all of my friends were taking the intro software engineering class. And again, being like a snotty teenager who didn't really know how to think about her future, I was like, well, fine. like. I don't know what I'm going to do with my life because this whole like econ thing doesn't look like it's going to work out, but I guess I'll take this engineering class with my friends. And that's why I say that I like fell into it really randomly. Well, I spent a few years as a graduate student at MIT. It sort of surprises me that you would like in a summer fall in love with that because it's not as college campuses go. It's a little industrial in large part. There are parts that are not entirely. I mean, there's some, beautiful quads and things like that, but it's not a warm and fuzzy sort of atmosphere. And I was over in the political science part. What was it about it that got you that summer before you you went? Some of it was being in an environment of my peers. I think it was the first time for me, which is like not to say like I don't want to like knock my high school and the people I grew up with, but I think that Going to MIT was the first time I was surrounded entirely by people who approached the world with a similar sort of like curiosity and um, like thoughtful rigor that that really that I wanted to apply to the world and that really appealed to me. Yeah, it's the people that got you. Yeah, and it was also this like I remember like this was something that was really notable to me that summer, and then also my first year I remember kept thinking about it was you know I I had grown up in a world where like if you broke something you either like went without it or you went and bought a new one. Or if you had a problem, you went and bought something to solve it. Or you sort of were like, eh, this isn't, you know, you just like didn't solve it. And like MIT was the first place where if something broke or you needed something or like you had something just even interesting, the first question that anybody asked was like, can we fix it? Can we do it ourselves? Can we solve the problem with what we have? Or can we improve it? And that sort of like curiosity about that world then opening up um, was like so enthralling for me. And actually that's the thing that brought me back to software engineering too, was that like ability, 
that like with a computer or with a phone now you can solve these problems that you can do things that like previously you just couldn't do it wasn't that kind of tooling wasn't in your hand so easily that's not an easy major at MIT I've talked to plenty of undergraduates and people who've graduated from there did it come easy to you was it a struggle what was your experience in computer engineering as you went through for 4 years I never struggled with school before MIT. And I think the thing that it I realized upon arriving at MIT is that not having struggled in school meant I didn't know how to learn, which in retrospect is like a little bit strange because my my parents were very my parents are very academic, um very very smart and very very rigorous and my dad spent a lot of time actually teaching me math and like creative problem solving when I was younger. So actually like I'm kind of as we're having this conversation, realizing it, it's a little bit weird to say that, but I think it was because school just came so naturally to me in high school and prior to that, um, that I didn't know how to learn when it wasn't something that I could pick up really easily. I think like people get to MIT and there are people who it's just, it's so easy. Like I have a friend who ended up with a double major and he didn't take any of the undergrad classes for one of those majors. He took a bunch of grad classes and then he went to the the registrar and he was like, you have to give me the second major because look at all these physics classes I've taken. And they were like, but you haven't fulfilled any of the requirements. He was just, he was like, just look at, and they were like, okay, fine. Like, here's your, here's your degree. And so there were people like that. And that was not me at all. Like, and then I definitely fell into the bucket where there were a lot of us who like, we didn't, we just like didn't really know how to do it. And I think there were some people who could learn. And that's, I think I fell into that category of like, I got middling grades to be clear, but I figured out how to, how to like get my legs under me and how to start to learn. I mean, you were there, it's a pressure cooker and it's a, it's a hard place to learn. And, you know, it's the first time you're free and on your own and you're around all these other people who like, I don't know if you, was as a grad student, if you interacted much with like the split cultures of campus, but I was part of the like, mischief making east side that was like running around doing things that maybe we shouldn't have been doing um when we really should have been working on our schoolwork and it was really easy to get distracted by that too it's not that i didn't have friends in high school but i wasn't like a popular kid and getting to mit i suddenly was i like blossomed in many ways um socially and like came into myself much more at mit and all of that was a you know a pretty big distraction from the schoolwork that i also wasn't naturally inclined to well, I think that's a pretty common college experience, but that kind of learning external to the classroom is just as critical, right? Yes. Yeah. Just growing as a person. A hundred percent. I mean, obviously I only have my own college experience. You know, I have friends who regret going to MIT. I have friends who loved it. I would say for me, I fell into even as much as it was very much, a, it was very difficult in many ways. I loved it. And I think that the learning that I had there at least felt unique and it felt like it was a real opportunity to grow and to learn in some incredible ways um, and to get exposure and experience just in areas that I had never had before and an opportunity to, I think, to really challenge my worldview and to challenge my problem solving and to challenge the, w the way that I approach things. Um, and I think that that has served me really, really well. And I think that that more than what, you know, a lot of people think about like the MIT pedigree is what MIT got me. Well, I think if you are challenged and it's difficult, but yet you make it through, that gives you kind of a confidence when you face other challenges down the road. That's definitely true. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> no lies. So what did you do when you came out with that pedigree? I went to Silicon Valley and I did the startup thing. I ended up initially at a company called StumbleUpon, which is a bit of a blast from the past for some people or other people have never heard of it. But it was a, um, technically, it was a combination sort of like recommendation engine content tool slash, I guess, in some ways, like an early so social network. Um, basically, the conceit of it was that you would put in like a thing that you were interested in, or you would list a number of interests. And then there was a toolbar at the top that you would hit and it would like you would stumble and it would show you a random web page. And it was like meant to help you like discover new content. This wasn't quite before Facebook, but I think it was when Facebook was still a thing, like people didn't think of Facebook as a way to discover content, but it was instead like a way to like, you know, see your friends photos or like interact with your high school friends. And so this was meant to be this like content discovery engine. And so I worked on the 
the recommendation team there. My one and only foray into machine learning. <laughs> was Plimpton your startup? Yes. Yes, it was. Tell me about um, that. So Plimpton was, like I said, my life has been very random. Um, I met a woman at a party at the Internet Archive. She was my ex-boyfriend's ex-roommate's ex-girlfriend. Ah, very connected. (laughs) At the time, none of those exes were true. I think all of us were still like in those relationships at the time. And she was a New York Times journalist or former New York Times journalist named Jenny A. Lee, who was interested in the question of um, what does modern reading look like? 50% of adults, at, at least at the time, said that they don't read enough. And most adults, if you talk to them, would say that they don't read enough because they don't have time. The actual fact of that is that like, we don't prioritize reading. And there's many other things that distract us from reading. But that's the at least the why we believe we don't read. One of the things that we were really thinking about was, or she was talking about when we were chatting, was that reading hadn't really evolved with the smartphone, right? Like what all we did is we took books and we put them on a computer Um, and, you know, maybe the computer's in your pocket, but that's basically it. We just made it easier to take books with you, but we haven't really like opened up any sort of like technology hasn't transformed reading in a way that it might be able to. She was really interested in solving this problem of like, how do we bring reading into the modern age? And this is a question of both like, how do we help people read more, but also the way that the publishing industry works when it comes to like advances and how authors get paid and so on, like it's very difficult to make your living as a writer. And so that was like an additional thing that we were trying to address. Coming out of that party, I ended up joining as the CTO and technical co-founder of Plimpton, um, which had started life as like a sort of publishing company. Like originally it was her and an editor and they were like publishing stories. And then from there it took this really technical angle of like, can we build a tool that actually changes the way that people read? I'm guessing it didn't work just because it ended or your tenure there ended. And if things take off, that's not typically what happens. But what was the main thing you learned by trying to tackle that? So the biggest thing that is like still impacting my life today that I learned working there is what I call, and I'm actually learning a little bit that this is not always a word, like it, it's not a word that always works for people, but um, a product sense because it was a such a small team. I was the only technical person there. I became really interested in how, as a technical person, you bridge between non-technical folks and the people who are actually building and engineering. I became really interested in like that, that communication bridge and like how you actually develop for the problem you're trying to solve. And so when I say product, people often get really tangled up in the idea of like a product manager and what they think product management has meant historically for them. Um, and people also often get really tangled up in the idea of product as a you know piece of software that you are delivering that does something in some way. But when I say product, I really mean about this like user-centric idea where the thing that you're always trying to bring it back to is like, what is the problem that you're really trying to solve? And that's a question for both the engineer, like what do you think this tool is doing? But it's also for the subject matter expert is usually the way I describe them, for the non-technical stakeholder. Because oftentimes people will describe a problem And they'll end up um, really mixing up a lot of ideas and having a lot of base assumptions in that. My fascination with technology and policy comes from this too. Um, So to give like a really concrete example of this, one of the things that we discovered when we were at Plimpton, which I like has stuck with me for a long time, is that way back in the day, publishers, when they would write contracts, they would write contracts to say that they owned the rights to publish the book in written, in paper form what they really wanted was the ability to publish the book, right? And like the intellectual property of like the written word. To them, that and saying they wanted the book itself, like the public, the paper publishing was the same thing. They were equivalent because they were confusing the ideas that they were trying to hold on to, the IP, with the book itself. And what this means is that you have a ton of books from like prior to the 70s or the 80s that the rights, the digital rights to publish those books, the e, like so to publish them as ebooks, exist with the writers, and the paper rights exist with the publishing companies. And it's not worth the like warehousing costs, basically, for the publishing company to still publish the books. But the authors either don't know about, or don't care about, or don't have the ability to publish the ebook version. And so there's no way for readers to access these books. 
And that's because of that confusion, that mix-up of this idea that we wanted the intellectual property, but we conflated that with the actual published physical form. And so I've become really obsessed with this idea that when we're trying to solve problems, we often conflate the method of solving them or like a specific implementation or vehicle with the problem itself. And so something that actually on the campaign got me in trouble a couple of times was I would just be like, but what are you really trying to do? I would just like say that. And at one point, somebody who I actually had a very, very good working relationship with in the final week of the campaign, he was just like, we want people to vote. And I was like, okay, okay, let's, let's all step back. We all know that we want people to vote. And I, but you've heard me ask this question before, and you know what I'm actually asking. Let's let's actually like, you know, bring it back. And so I've become really fascinated with that that question and also the way related to that in which like our language doesn't match up. When we're the two of us are talking, obviously we're both speaking English. But oftentimes when I say a word, like I said, product earlier, people think of a certain thing and it's not quite what I mean, and we're slightly apart from each other. And I found oftentimes when working with technical stakeholders or non-technical stakeholders and engineers and trying to make that bridge, oftentimes we're not speaking the same language or we're not understanding those base assumptions. And that's where your implementation or your problem solving goes totally wrong. That makes sense. I mean, I think there's something about that product mindset that is very attractive because one, because you sort of have an ownership over something that you're creating and two, it's just actually the hot area right now. Like there's been space made for a profession around kind of product management in a more true way that didn't exist before, I don't think. It's separated from project management. It's a career that that is a valuable and interesting one. Yeah, I think that's very true. Um, and I think that in a lot of the areas that people will say, oh, they're not good at technology political tech being one of them. One, I think it's, you know, that's like a simplification, obviously, of the problem. But I think, too, it's that we haven't necessarily brought in product managers in this, like, as systemically in the same way. Engineers are often the first of, like, a t of the technical skill set to enter a realm. And I think that this is partially because engineers are, frankly, like, extremely overvalued in Silicon Valley. Um, and so they're often the first to break into a new area. But I really think that product management is when you really transform an industry, when you can start actually really bringing in product managers in the way that works for that industry, because all, all industries have very different constraints. And I think that's the thing from the outside, it's really difficult to understand. But when you bring in product managers and when you start being able to figure out what those constraints are and to bridge those. I mean, it does seem like when somebody gets the product right, they can transform an industry in a way that the a product that that did the same things but wasn't right couldn't. Like I think, you know, like the iPhone. There's lots of examples like that. I want to move you through your career just a little bit more. I'm curious, was Eventbrite an important step along the way? How was that? It was important in a lot of ways from a technical perspective. I think Eventbrite is when I really grew as an engineer. I think it had less of a transformative impact on my mindset. One of the things that's always true about being a technical leader is that you have to have a certain level of technical chops, not only to be respected, um, but to truly understand the needs and the difficulties facing your team, right? And to understand the things that your team is trying to figure out from a trade-off perspective, from a timing perspective, what they're working through. And I think that Eventbrite is really where I, where I gained that. You mentioned that you visited a friend at the Hillary campaign in 2016, but it's more than a visit that pulls someone into such a big change. Where were you politically? What was what was going through your head as you were as you contemplated that and made that decision to join them in the in the fall, in sort of the run up to what was a monumental election? Yeah. I mean, so I mentioned when I was growing up, I was like, I grew up quite conservative. Um, and I was, a you know, hardcore Republican growing up, not that I really knew what that meant. <laughs> um, but you know, lived in a single party town, went to a very single party school, and so on. During my time at MIT is really when that started to change. And then I think probably in like, 
2013, 2014 is when I really started caring about policy and understanding the ways in which government has the ability to change people's lives for the better or for the worse. Some of my joining the Hillary campaign was just a straight up fascination. I like to tell people um, that I am really, really fascinated by topics that people don't really understand um, that are like things that like very few people know a lot about, like weird systems. The question of how somebody gets elected is one of those. So it was a combination of that really interesting curiosity and this, you know, I, I remember one of the things too that was really was really big for me was I was in a car in the summer of 2016 and overheard the Republican National Convention that year. And to hear Donald Trump's acceptance speech was such a driver of like what a dangerous moment in history we were in. And the reason I brought up my like curiosity too to, when talking about this is that that was a really big driver for me, but I also didn't believe that I, as an individual software engineer, in the last two months of the campaign could have a huge impact on whether or not Donald Trump was elected. I wanted to do what I could, and I believe that it was the most that I could do, but I did not go into it thinking, oh, the campaign needs me, right? Like, I just was like fully aware of like the limitations, <laughs> my own limitations at the time. So for me, it was this combination of it's the it's the most that I can personally do, right? It's more than it's more than phone banking, it's more than text banking, although I guess text banking was really new at the time, so maybe I didn't know what that was. It's more than door knocking, and it's this opportunity to really step out of the sort of armchair activism or like frustration with what was happening and like learn, take the first step in my own journey into like learning and understanding how this system worked. And I thought it would just make me a better citizen. I didn't actually think it would lead to a full career change. <laughs> well, what surprised you the most about that time on Hillary? I think the biggest thing for me was really how I've always really gotten along quite well with my coworkers. I've always loved the people I've worked with, which I recognize I'm extremely lucky to be able to say that. But the camaraderie and the care, I think, for each other that I saw among, in the team on Hillary was mind-blowing. Just the, the willingness to help each other, the diversity of the team, and the shared belief in making the world a better place and wanting, and like that commitment to changing the world for the better was like really astonishing for me in a way that I'd never experienced before in my work. People really went above and beyond to help other people out with very little expectation of receiving anything in response. They were very just like excited to work together and excited to, to do things that were like mundane. I still remember at one point, um, somebody I had only ever said hi to once before stayed with me, stayed up with me until 2am debugging. And just, I think that sort of like, we're all in this together. We all really care. And we don't, we're here for the mission, not for the tech was just really, really impressive, like intoxicating in some ways, right? I'm not a technologist who cares about technology for the sake of technology, right? Like I think new technology is really interesting, but I don't, I'm not obsessed with it. It's not why I do the work. I'm really interested in solving problems for underrepresented people and underserved people. And I think these are things that the Hillary campaign gave me a chance to do that working in Silicon Valley really didn't. And that was really big for me. Had you been happy in Silicon Valley? I'd say I've been happy but not content. Silicon Valley is an easy place to not have responsibility. I was very young. I didn't have any uh, responsibilities or anything, any dependence other than my cat. Um, and so I could just kind of do whatever I wanted. I could go play and it just didn't really matter. So I was happy, but I think I was always aware that there was something else and that there was something more I could be doing. And I was often frustrated by what I felt like was the trivial nature of the problems that I was solving in a lot of the work that I was doing. I guess after Hillary, you went back and did some work in the commercial world. Yeah. I went and worked for a startup called Stripe. So I worked for their compliance engineering team, which is basically, so Stripe is a financial company. They do a bunch of different things, but uh, their primary business is they take credit card payments. And there's a lot of regulations around when you're moving money around. There's just a lot of regulations about knowing your customer and making sure that you're not violating sanctions, that you're not you know, sending money to somebody who's on a terrorist watch list or so on. 
or that you're not funding illegal activity. So I worked for the team that was helping with that. I ended up going back to industry um, because the progressive space was really just devastated in 2016. I'm sure you remember this. Uh, And everybody was like in shock. There was a lot of grief. And I think that everybody was a little bit, there was this like pause where everybody was like collectively trying to figure out what we were going to do now, right? Like the world essentially just ended. And it was this question of like, what are we going to do? And so a lot, I think very few progressive organizations at that point were hiring, especially hiring roles that they saw as like not necessarily critical, which I think technologist roles fell into. I did interview for a few jobs in the progressive space, but I think that my my brain, you know, I just was, I was in a bad place. I was not interviewing well. It was like not a good time. Um, so it was just really hard to find jobs in the movement space. So I spent about three months looking for jobs in the movement space and just like couldn't find anything. And that was about the point where I was like, well, I got to pay the bills. Um, I ended up at Stripe specifically for two primary reasons. The main one was I'm really interested in tech policy and policymaking. A specific job I was offered was a good opportunity to try to figure out how does a private company try to comply with regulation that was not designed for that company. The other reason was like fundamentally, I had a lot of friends who worked at Stripe and it's um, it's a really good company. You know, it's got like a very good reputation in the space as a place to work and as a place where people who are incredibly smart go to work. What took you back to the DNC where you were doing voter protection? It was actually very random. I had decided that I wanted to quit Stripe and I wanted to throw all of my stuff into storage and leave San Francisco for good. Um, I'd been trying for a while. Uh, this is sort of related to my desire to move into something more meaningful, it felt to me, than the tech industry, and in particular into the political and policy space. But the gravity of San Francisco is hard to escape, right? And I had I had a rent-controlled apartment that I lived in 2018. I'd lived in that apartment since 2011. It was absurdly cheap. And I was aware that if I gave up my apartment and I gave up my life in San Francisco, the chances of going back were basically zero. I think that my apartment rented for like double the price when I left. It was like, if you leave, you're gone. And so I just, and I, I felt like I like was holding myself back. So I was like, you know, what? I'm just going to go for it. I quit my job. I gave up my apartment. I put all my stuff in storage and I bought a one-way ticket to Europe. And I was like, this is pretty wild. Like, this is the most irresponsible thing I've ever done. Maybe I should like think about getting like a contracting job, right? Like software engineering is really easy to contract. I'd like talk to a couple like quote unquote digital nomads, which is like still a term that confuses me a little bit, but talk to some people who had done that. And so I was in um, the like Hillary alum Slack channel and I was like, hey, I'm quitting my job. I'm going to need some contracting gigs. If anybody has any like leads on that, please let me know. And a friend of mine was working at the DNC at the time was like, oh, hey, do you remember LBJ, which is the software that we use for uh, voter protection at the DNC? Well, we actually would really, we really need somebody to rewrite it. And like, we're thinking about hiring a contractor. Do you want the gig? So I was like, Yes, like 100%, that would be great. And that ended up working out really well. Yeah. Did that lead to Schmidt Futures? How did you end up at, at Schmidt? Yeah, I would say like sort of in the way that, you know, I, I think something I hadn't quite realized is that like I was slowly building up a reputation in the space for my work. And and I didn't realize at the time how small the political tax space is really as, an, as a community, tiny. You know, so my work at the DNC, I think like, it was it was an opportunity to work with people like Jennifer Kane, to work with people like Bob Lord, to work with my friend Akiva, who had gotten me in, and, and various other people who are still there. They did actually offer me a full-time job at the DNC, and I was like, oh, you know, I, I really don't want to do this software engineering thing. I had, like, thought of my contracting time period and, like, my gallivanting around the world during that time as, like, a, one last hurrah. And then I was like, I'm going to move to D.C. I'm really going to do it this time. I'm going to move to D.C. I'm going to focus. I'm going to, like, pound the pavement, and I'm going to find a job in tech policy. That's what I want. So I did that. I, you know, January of 2019, I spent the I spent the holidays with my parents in Taiwan, flew back uh, to San Francisco, picked up my cat, picked up some luggage and like flew to DC, which I can say the cat was very displeased about. She was going from San Francisco to deep winter <laughs> in DC. She had never experienced before. She was alarmed. Um, showed up in DC and just started like networking my way through the tech policy space which is small. It's very small space, met a lot of people. And during that time period, I got introduced to somebody who worked for Eric Schmidt. um, And they were specifically looking for a technologist to help them with the democracy and politics portfolio of his philanthropy. Both the fact that I knew people in the space and also the work that I had done in voter protection at the DNC 
was very interesting to them because a lot of the work that we were doing that they wanted um, me to work on was similarly like democracy access, voter protection, voter registration, election security kind of work. So it dovetailed really nicely. Tell me about your time there. What was it like to work there? What sort of things did you work on? I'll start with the easier question, which is like, what did I work on? One of the things that is interesting about Eric Schmidt and his philanthropy is they're very um, tech focused, which I think is somewhat unusual. And especially due to Eric's background, he's really interested in making sure that the tech that he is donating to is like good. And so they were looking to hire an engineer who could help them evaluate you know, projects and say like, not only is the technology good, is it feasible and so on, but is this the right team? You know, are they a good fit for like, can this team actually execute? I imagine it's actually very similar to what an EIR does, or sorry, an entrepreneur in residence does at like a a venture capital firm. Um, I've never done that, but I assume it's, it's somewhat similar. And then similarly, you can provide advice, right? You're like, hey, I think this team is great, but maybe they need a little bit of help with their product roadmap. Well, now it's not crazy for us to donate to them because we can also bolster them in that way. They've made a bunch of donations or investments in firms in the progressive political and the democracy space. What are these projects that you're evaluating? And these were all tech organizations, pretty much? I would say they were all tech-enabled organizations, right? Everything's yeah. like a very modern... It's, they're modern organizations where, um, where they use... Techno- technology is a big component of the work they do. And there were a lot of these? It's like a big portfolio? Honestly, I don't know. This was my first time ever in philanthropy. So I'm like, I don't know. It seemed like, it didn't seem like crazy, like a crazy number of organizations. Were there experiences there that really were helpful in preparing you for your later role as CTO of the Biden campaign? Definitely. I mean, I do think like a lot of the question of like, how do you evaluate a team is like really, it's it's super important from a uh, campaign CTO perspective. I think one of the things that was particular about 2020 compared to previous years is we worked a lot with outside vendors. They weren't totally vendors and they weren't totally like contractors, right? We were often buying off-the-shelf technology, but then asking for a lot of updates and changes as part of the contract. We might pay somebody like uh, through text or so on, get through, I guess. Um, But we would then ask for a lot of customization of the tool that they had. And I think the question of like, one, the ability to both evaluate those teams and then two, work really closely with those teams and like recognize like how do you interact in a way that's, I would say, um, productive rather than just sort of distracting or getting in the way was a big part of success as a campaign CTO, at least the CTO of this particular campaign, right? Like 2016 was obviously a very different time period as far as custom tech and who was building it goes. The part of the question I asked earlier that you left hanging was, what was it like as a place to work? Yeah. So it was really different for me. I had spent my whole career in the very, very casual environment of Silicon Valley, right? Where um, I think Eric Schmidt himself is infamous for this quote, where they say, I, I think at some point somebody asked him, what is the dress code for Google? And he said, wear clothes, right? Extremely casual, like just really doesn't, don't care. And if that's coming from the CEO of Google, then everyone's going to follow, right? Right, right. Well, or they naturally would anyway. Right. I mean, I think that like one of the things that was true when I went to Silicon Valley, and I think it's still true, is like engineers have a lot of leeway, right? Like we're expensive, we're hard to get. Like we're a we are the supply and demand curve is such that the power is really in the hands of the engineers themselves. And it means that like, you can't impose rules that engineers don't like. And most engineers don't like wearing things that aren't t-shirts and jeans. But was it different at this philanthropy? Or- yes, it was. So that's, that's the thing is, it was much more formal. I think because the philanthropic space is a lot more formal. And a lot of the organizations that you might work with are a lot more formal. So a lot of the people who worked there, who work at Schmidt Futures, either came from management consulting or from the Obama White House which were two, as you might imagine, much more formal <laughs> places in Silicon Valley. And so it was a big learning curve for me to, to go from what had been a very, very informal place. Like when I was at Stripe, you know, I like my second week there, I think I had lunch with the CEO. He like came into the cafeteria and he sat down at my table. Right. And that was just like, that's what happened, which is not to say that I think the CEO of Schmidt Futures was difficult to interact with in any way, but it's just, it's not quite that level of like, And there is Patrick Collison wearing a t-shirt sitting next to me at lunch, right? Like it's just not, it's not that level of informality. 
Um, and so I think it was a big learning curve for me to go to like learn the formality and learn sort of the language of management consulting and memos and like that kind of like formality versus a like, I'm just shooting the breeze. I'm just like here doing this thing. It was a great lesson though, right? Like I think it was an important lesson to learn. It's a time where I was shifting from being one of many technologists in a room and working really closely with other technologists who were problem solving partners who I could work with from like on a technical level together to being the only or one of the few technologists in the room who needed to be able to like speak with authority to people who didn't understand technology and to sort of meet them where they were both from a working style, but also from a like sort of technical understanding perspective and to sort of adjust my approach and thinking to work well with how people were used to receiving information. Um, And I think that Schmidt Futures was a very friendly place to learn that. How does it fit into the progressive or the political tech ecosystem? What's its role? What what would it like its role to be? I can't speak for Schmidt Futures specifically. One, because I'm no longer employed there. And two, because even if I were employed there, there'd be like a pretty serious NDA in place that would prevent me from saying, oh, this is what we're doing. Um, But I think that there's a bigger question here, uh, which is like, what is the role of donors in the political space or investors in the political space? There's still a big question in the political tech space about what is the financial model that helps us break the cyclic nature of political tech? The political tech space is cyclical and like that there's a cycle is not news. But I do think that there's still this open question that people are trying to figure out how to answer, right? And Higher Ground Labs is one way to try to answer this. The DNC is another way to try to answer this. And I do think that like donors may also have a place there, especially for things that are supposedly nonpartisan, like voter registration and so on, where it's a way to smooth out the the funding cycle, right? Like instead of saying like all of the money goes in during the presidential and then it poofs, it's gone. And now like good luck surviving for the next three years. I think that there's a world in which we as a movement figure out how do you donate regularly? How do you provide sustainability? How do you make it so that we're not building technology and then leaving it fallow for four years and then we build it again. I don't know the answer to that, certainly. And I don't, even if I did, like, it's not like I'm in control of it. But I think that there's a really big open question about that. And also, I think there's this question about, like, what do we as progressive technologists owe to the movement? When you're uh, just straight up private industry, private company, just trying to make money, there's not this question of, like, I'm part of a bigger movement that I owe something back to right? I can have my patents. I can have my defensive maneuvers. I don't need to like open source my code because like, I am not interested in this broader movement. I am interested in like making money and making change in the world in the way that I care about, right? And I'm not part of this bigger thing, but that's not true in progressive tech. And I think that there is a space for that bigger discussion to free us from that competitive capitalistic environment, maybe for donors. I don't have the answer to that. I don't know what that looks like. Um, I think that Higher Ground Labs is like pioneering some interesting new funding models. I think they I, they had a blog post recently about. I didn't read it really closely, but there was like, I saw a blog post recently about that. I think to answer these questions, and I think the thing that's really interesting is that it's a group discussion in the way that the democratic space really is, the progressive space really is. That power is that it's a grassroots, people driven conversation about like what's the best way to approach this. It's not the top down control of the conservative conservative movement. Well, it sounds like it gave you the opportunity to somewhat survey the progressive tech space that would be useful for someone going to a presidential after that. Were there any specific experiences that you think helped lead you to that CTO role? I did work on a couple of like large events, let's say, um, which I, I think I still can't really, I really can't talk about. You know, I got the opportunity, I think, to really meet and work with a lot of folks who were are critical to the movement and who having a good relationship with were imp- was important. Um, somebody like Nell Thomas being a really good example. Who's CTO at the DNC. Yes, yes, the DNC yeah. CTO. I had the opportunity to um, go to like a number of the ASDC meetings, sorry, the Association of State Democratic Chairs, where I got a chance, for example, to drink with Matthew Stafford, who is the CTO of... Um, the Democratic Data Exchange. And um, yeah, you know, just got to meet a lot of folks like that, that I think was a good opportunity to to really learn more about the space. 
I think that's the most important part, right? I think it's the learning that's important. And I think that one of the common criticisms of tech folks in the space is that we show up and we're here to be tech saviors. We're like, I have the answer. You're doing it wrong. You know, your tech is bad because you don't understand technology. And it turns out like that's not the answer. Like the reason that the tech is bad is because there's a lot of incentives in the space that can make it hard to make good tech. And I think it was a chance to actually show up and listen and meet people and like get to know what those incentives and those problems were. And I think that that made me both a better CTO from a, I knew how to go in and talk to people and speak the same language and like knew what they were struggling with. But also it made me, um, you know, it gave me that reputation for like being a person who shows up and listens as opposed to a person who shows up saying, I have the answer. How did you find that job? How did you land the CTO role at the Biden campaign in 2020 when the future of the world rode upon it? Yeah. We at Schmidt Futures had heard that they were looking for a new CTO. And I had a conversation, a sort of joking conversation with a friend where I was like, oh, you know, imagine you CTO of the Biden campaign. And he was like, ha ha ha, no, you. And then he was like, actually, do you want the job? And I was like, I don't know what the job is. Like, I don't, I don't even know how to begin answering that question. We started talking about like, what did we know about like campaign technology and presidential technology? What did we know about what the Biden campaign was going through? And, you know, at the end of the day, I was like, you know what? Saying, yeah, I'm interested in the job doesn't commit me to anything. Like, let's have a conversation. Like, why not? Why not apply? Right? How does it hurt? I was later found out and I was like surprised and flattered that apparently a, a few people had put my name in. It wasn't just my friend who had some connection to the campaign who put my name in, but a few people did. And one of those people ended up introducing me directly to the person who was heading up the search for the new CTO in an email. And we had a call and it was actually kind of funny because I had thought they had already picked a CTO at that point. He introduced me and I didn't hear from them for a little bit. And so I had been like, oh, they already found somebody, you know, late to the game. And then they reached out and they were like, actually would love to talk. And then in the opening, they were like, yeah, so um, I'm lo- we're looking for a CTO. And I was like, oh, okay. So I was like a little bit like, well. Because didn't they have one, someone from the primary? Yes. Yeah. So Dan Woods had been the uh, CTO during the primary, but then he left when they shifted toward the general. And yeah, so I just, you know, had the conversation, went through the interview process. I don't 100% know for sure why they picked me. Um, I did have a conversation later with my boss, who had been the person who had been heading up the search as well. And she told me, she was like, I picked you because you had a good reputation. And I you know, thought that you would be a good fit for the role. And, and then she said, I was right. And I was like, great. <laughs> you know, this was after we had won. So it was, it was like a... Jackie, what was the role? Like for this particular campaign, I think it's different on each presidential, but what was the role of CTO as they put it to you and as you did it? The questions that they were really focused on initially when during the interview process, I think there were two questions that were very good questions to be asking. One, which was, what is your hypothesis around buy versus build, right? Because remember, I was interviewing in June of 2020. I think there was an obvious right answer, but obviously I'm biased. But like the right answer was like, there's no time. Buy what you can and like make do. And then the other one that they were concerned about was, you know, what do you think the relationship with the DNC should be? And I, and I think that was it. it was, a lot of it was, how do you inform the technical decisions of the team? And then how do you work with the DNC, who is providing a lot of the technical support to the, the campaign? And like, how do you make sure that that's a healthy relationship? And that was something that, you know, was very different from 2016. I came in very late uh, in 2016 as well, even later than I came into 2020. But my understanding was that the campaign was was the team, right? Like the, there was a campaign, they were doing the tech and so on, where with the DNC, in because the DNC was so strong, Nell had done, Rafi first, and then Nell had done such a good job of strengthening the DNC and like building up the tech team over time. There was a lot of tech, including my old friend LBJ, that the DNC could run, that the DNC could support in order to, um, you know, so that we didn't have to. Like, I didn't have to rebuild LBJ, which we did on the Hillary campaign in like, I think it was like the last two weeks of the election cycle, we rebuilt LBJ from the ground up. Those were really important. And then obviously, the, the third thing, which they were very concerned about during the interview process was, there was a team, you know, there was a team that of, of a small team of engineers that needed support. And they wanted to make sure that whoever came in was going to support the team was going to be a good manager. So that, that's what they were looking for 
when I got in, my big concern was those three things. But I think in order to do those things, are the team's relationship with stakeholders, right? A tech team is really interesting in a campaign in that it doesn't have its own primary mission. In a campaign, the fundraising team is all about raising as much money as possible, right? And they have goals. They have, you know, they need to raise X hundred millions of dollars a, a month or whatever. The organizing team has its own set of goals. They need to recruit X thousands of volunteers and they need to, they need to build in this, pers- this specific way. Comms teams have their own goals to get some number of, you know, to, res- to do rapid response and to get some number of news stories or, or Facebook posts or whatever out. We didn't have that, right? Our goals were their goals. Our goals was we're supporting the fundraising team. We need to raise that money. We're supporting the the digital organizing team or the organizing team. Like we need to recruit those volunteers, et cetera, et cetera. And so I think that's one of the things that's really interesting about it about a team is like you don't have your own goals. Your goals and your mission is the teams that you're supporting, and so you and need- to provide the tech to help them. Yes. do that as as efficiently as possible. Right, and seamlessly. Right. How do you yep. make it? I think this, the question, good technology is technology that disappears, right? Like people aren't like trying to wrestle with and so on, which is not to say that our campaign, our technology on the campaign disappeared, but like it should be seamless, right? It should be as easy to use as possible and it should fulfill the nuanced needs of those organizations, of those teams. My big concern when I joined was that relationship with our stakeholders. How do we make sure that the stakeholders trust us and that we're in the room when they're trying to problem solve so that we can provide the best solution. Not because like we want to be in the room and like, oh, you know, we want to be there, but because that's the way that we're going to best be able to provide the best solution, that we're going to be able to truly understand the problems that they're dealing with and how technology can help or hinder, depending on if you do it wrong, what they're trying to do. And so I actually spent my first three to five weeks playing five very bad product managers, like very bad, right? Product managers and product manager recruiter. Um, because like my first, my, my big focus coming in besides like just figure out what was going on was like staffing up people who would be really, really good at managing those relationships and working really closely with those teams. With the benefit of hindsight and after what you've learned now in two presidential campaigns in different roles, this one being a lot bigger, how would you advise someone who might want the job or have the job doing it next time? I've got a couple of different pieces of advice. And I think some of it is in in the hands of that person and some of it is not. I think the, the biggest one is it's really important to build those stakeholder relationships really early and to really have people recognize you as a partner. And I think that the campaign was not structured in a way that made that easy. It's not in the hands of at least what my role was. But I do think that having a tight coupling between the digital teams organizing or digital organizing, if it it is split out again, the technology team and the analytics team, and maybe potentially even having them all report up to the same person is actually really, really valuable because there's a lot of properties and platforms that are shared between these teams. And it's really important that decision-making across them is made with an eye toward the broader strategy rather than like one team saying, well, this is my, this is my need right now. And so, you know, and I've got more control over the website than everybody else does. So I'm going to run with it, right? Like you need people who are thinking about it across and who also deeply understand what it takes to build the technology, because it's important to understand what the constraints are. And that when people come to you saying, these are what the constraints are, you, you are able to evaluate or not those. Whether or not that's, that title is CTO or like whether I would have been the right person for that is I think a little bit, like that's not quite, you know, I'm not saying that I should have been over all of those teams and that, that you should call that person a CTO. But I do think that role is incredibly valuable and that that will set you up for success. I think that's the, the main one. I mean, I think the other ones are, it's really important to think about the trade-offs between buying something and therefore you don't have direct control over it. And what does that mean? From both a, like, if something goes wrong, what are your levers, right? Like, we were fortunate. We had very good partners who, when something went wrong on a Saturday at, like, midnight, they were there. But you can't guarantee that that's going to happen. And, like, yes, you kind of can through contracts and, like, everybody in the movement you hope is in it with you. But it's hard. It's really, really hard. And sometimes it doesn't work out. So there's a question of levers, right? And but. what you're buying by buying an outside team is a bigger team, right? Like than you could manage, right? Like when we went with GetThrough, part of the reason we did is because they had a big engineering team 
and we did it. So we couldn't, you know, running something in house was going to be very different from. You build it yourself. You have tons of control over it, but you're building it for one client and you can't share that, you know, the expenses over a whole market. Right. And you also, you've got a, a billion other things to do, right? Like get through, like their job is to do dials and texting. And we had like a bunch of other things that we were doing. So, you know, there's, there's that. And then there's also the problem of branding. Oftentimes we would purchase something and we would white label it. But that means that even though we're not controlling the technology, if there's say a problem with the technology, like a data leak, or even just a bad user experience, the campaign appears to be on the hook for that, right? Even though there's, that's not something we can control. And again, that's something you can work really, really tightly with, with your vendor partners on. It's a place where there can be trouble and there can be loggerheads in it. And it can be a place where there's, if things aren't smooth and when you're in the height of a campaign and things are really stressful, that's a place that you often want things to be smooth. So I'm not saying that you shouldn't have partners when you're white labeling, but I think that's something that you need to, that it's important to think about and to figure out like for the trade-offs, if that's worth it or not. I think we made the right decision for where we were. You know, when I came in, the team was, I think six engineers. There was no way we were building even a 30 person team at that point, let alone the 80 person team that the Hillary campaign had. You know, I understand from talking to other people that this isn't because the campaign didn't invest in or didn't want to invest in technology. You know, I think it's pretty public that the Biden campaign had trouble with with fundraising at the beginning. And this is the consequence of it. But I do think that if you're earlier in a campaign and you expect to be better resourced because, you know, your your fundraising is really good or maybe you're um, an incumbent or whatever. I don't think the answer is so obvious that you're always like definitely, definitely buy. You've had a couple different angles now to look at the progressive tech ecosystem. What's your sense of where it is, how healthy, how are we doing? So I think that the ecosystem is, it's an interesting place, right? I think that it is certainly a lot healthier than it was in 16. I, you know, there was a big influx of technologists into the space after our loss in 2016. A lot of people, I think it, it caused a lot of people to look up and go like, Oh, you know, I have to be a part of this. What do I, what can I do? And for a lot of us, it was, we're, we're engineers, we're software engineers, we're product managers. We can build technology. Let's, let's figure it out. And so I think that there's been a lot of innovation. There's a lot of new technology in the space and there's a lot of tools that just didn't exist in 16 or weren't, weren't robust enough in 16, but now are really great tools for the space. I think that we are much stronger from an engineering talent perspective. Then, um, or like a straight up sort of like, you know, product engineering, like front end, back end, full stack engineering, then we are in, I think, a lot of the other areas that are often things that companies that are more mature start focusing on. So UX design, um, like really conscious, thoughtful UX design, security, I think security has gotten better. But I think a lot of the attention on security in 20 after 2016 was on like personal enterprise security. How do I stop phishing emails, right? Phishing attacks and so on. And not so much about like app security, which are two really, really different things and have different consequences. So I think application security is another place that we could get a lot better at. And then just like straight up scalability, right? I think one of the things that was very interesting about a lot of the tools that saw prime time in 2020 is they had never gone through a presidential election before. And this is one of the things that's difficult about our, for our industry compared to the regular tech industry, which is you don't get the amount of scale, like you don't get a slow ramp up to scale, right? That hockey stick, when it comes, is the biggest day. It's GOTV, it's democracy on the line, where like, I get that like Twitter had a lot of trouble at the beginning because like they didn't expect the growth that they did. But frankly, nobody cares if Twitter, at least at the beginning, nobody cared if Twitter went down for a day. It just didn't matter. But here, if you've got a brand new canvassing app and it's only ever seen like 7,000 people at a time, well, it's ever seen like what, 300, 400 people during the midterms on it at a time. And now you're seeing 7,000, 8,000, 9,000, whatever people at a time. And you're thinking hundreds of thousands of contacts a day or even millions of contacts a day on it. That's a crazy increase in scale. And it's not something that you've been able to prep for. Both sides, Democrats and Republicans, have had plenty of run-ins with things not scaling in state level contests or presidential contests and it's hard so here's two presidential campaigns you went through 2016 and 2020 can you contrast the feeling after one and the other <laughs> i mean yes 100 percent. i think one of the things that was notably the same about the two 
I'll start there because it seems weird to talk about. It is maybe a little surprising to talk about the same between the two was the massively shared experience with a lot of strangers in both cases. I've been very, very lucky throughout my life. And 2016 for me was my first experience with really personal, deep grief, where I really mourned uh, a lost future. It was incredibly, incredibly difficult. In some ways, being on the campaign made it easier because um, you had people to mourn with, right? Like you had people who had been in the trenches with you, who you could share your grief with. You also had the consolation of knowing that you had done everything that you could possibly do. I think the thing that surprised me about it was that shared grief with like strangers. I remember I was on the train that Wednesday after going to the office and I saw a woman crying in the corner. And I remember thinking to myself, oh, I hope she's okay. I wonder what she's crying about. I teared up too because I was obviously like on a very emotional edge. I remember later I was like, oh, oh, we were crying about the same thing. Like she's, she's also sad that Hillary lost. Like it's not, it's not here, just here. And I remember like my brother called me, my brother lives in, he lived in really red, um, I think he was still in West Virginia at the time. And and then he was in Tennessee, but very red areas. And he didn't have anybody to talk to. And I just remember like we talked through the night that night, but he didn't have anybody to share his grief with, you know? And I think that was really hard. And then 2020 was, again, that shared experience, but the opposite, right? That elation, that incredible joy. I remember when I found out, I just I was in the streets of Brooklyn, and I just started screaming my head off. I was so excited. It, it was just nuts. And then, you know, we went out dancing, and it was just, there was an endless party. There was just endless honking, endless joy in the streets. And I remember I looked around, and all these people were wearing, like, Biden-Harris swag, and I was like, oh, that's where all our merch went. <laughs> It was all in the city. (laughs) And, and, you know, it it was just, and everybody was so excited with everyone else. We popped a bottle of champagne, you know, sitting on the steps of the Brooklyn Library, and we popped a bottle of champagne, and everybody around us just started shrieking with joy, right? Like that bottle pop, like everybody, not, you know, they weren't part of our group. They weren't going to be drinking the alcohol, but they were so excited. It was astonishing, both in like the degree of opposite sensation, but also the shared experience was the same in both. So you had talked about wanting to get into governing, into tech policy. What did you end up doing after the campaign? So I am currently the senior advisor for technology at the General Services Administration for uh, the United States government. What does that mean? (laughs) Uh, So I'm still somewhat trying to figure that out. Um, I think that every senior advisor sort of focuses on different things. It's my job to figure out how technology impacts GSA's ability to fulfill its mission and really focused on the primary four primary administration priorities of pandemic response, healthcare, racial equity, and climate change. And, you know, I think there's obviously a lot outside of that too, but those are the major areas. I mean, I think the news today is that the IRS had to pay billions of dollars in interest because they didn't get their refund checks on time. If you had properly staffed the IRS and had the proper investment in technology, I guarantee that would have cost a lot less than what we just paid in interest. Sometimes people are not looking at the big picture when they're taking care of of the tech operations of the U.S. government. That is definitely true. One of the things that is hard in governing, I mean, it's, it's one of those interesting things that is very similar, actually, I think, between political tech and civic tech. I think people often confuse the two of them. When I would talk to a lot of people when I was on the campaign or even before my campaign about what it was like to be in political tech, people would often say to me, oh, I'm really interested in political tech and civic tech. And I'd be like, no, 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 no. They're very, very different. Very similar people are, are attracted to them. But the incentives are very different. The structures are really different. The pace of work is really different. But I do think there is one thing that's really shared between the two, which is the government is not bad at technology because it doesn't have good technologists. It's like bad at technology because the incentive structures are really weird. And similarly, like political tech, we were bad at technology because the incentives were hard to deal with. And I think it, it took a lot of time. Incentives and constraints and just the environment for innovation is very determinative. Yes. People in both spaces have this phrase that we use a lot, which is, um, it's not a tech problem, it's a people problem. And I think that that's still true. 
the technology isn't complicated. It's not that hard. You're not training neural nets, right? It's you're not on the cutting edge. You're not trying to figure out like nanotubes and like how to do like quantum computing. You're trying to figure out how to text people or calculate refunds, but the the structures are big and hard to deal with. Is there a question I didn't ask that I should have? I still think that the space needs a lot of technologists. We need a lot of engineers. We need a lot of product people. We need a lot of designers. Um, we need people who are excited about the space. And uh, so I think the question that I would ask is, um, what would I say to people who are looking to get into the space? And what would you say to them? I think a big one is, one, it's worth it. You should absolutely do it. It's really, really hard. The pay is not good compared to what you could make outside of the industry. But the trade-off is, if you can afford it, it's totally worth it. You need to show up with a spirit of partnership and a spirit of service. I think the tech industry really overvalues software engineers. Like We get to kind of do what we want. And I do think that the political space can still really undervalue technologists. And the right answer is somewhere in the middle, but you need to come in recognizing that and not come in being like, I'm here to save the day, but say like, look, I'm here to contribute. I'm here to serve. I want to help. And I want to listen and hear how you need help. I'm not here to tell you what you're doing wrong. I'm here to be a partner to you and to to help you out and to improve what, you know, to to make your life easier and better. And that attitude probably would serve people in in many arenas, but it certainly is different than sometimes we've seen in the political tech space. And I think it's really good advice. Jackie, really an honor to talk to you today. Uh, Anything else you want to say? No, I don't think so. I really appreciate you having me on. This has been a lot of fun. For me too. So that was Jackie Chang. Jackie is at K-Y-O-K-I on Twitter. This is Nathaniel G. Perlman with the Great Battlefield Podcast. You can find us at greatbattlefield.com or by searching for Great Battlefield in places where podcasts are found.